Okay, if I smoke, absolutely. <laughs> yes, okay, we great. can definitely smoke. <laughs> we, whenever we get a chance, whenever our spouses let us, we we smoke, but that's not often. So. Um, okay, so we we are <laughs> we are thoughts and prayers. Welcome back. Yeah, um, yeah. Today we've got um, a, a special guest. I think it should be a, a super uh, interesting conversation. Um, it's Daniel Hadas. Is that the correct pronunciation of your name? Oh, that's okay. Fine. <laughs> um, and uh, Daniel has been a, uh, a a prominent voice of the, um, I guess you could say, kind of anti-lockdown or just anti-COVID regime. And he, he uh, I don't know if you want to call it controversy, but let's say you, you had a recent thread that um, made some waves. And, um, and uh, I would say that at least based on our understanding of what you were trying to say, that Q and, and myself might have some disagreements, but um, uh, uh, maybe not after all, if we talk about it. I think we should start with, I think we should just start with, because uh, that's what we wanted to talk about first. Um, well, first off, Daniel, do you have any other, do you have anything else you'd like to introduce yourself? Any projects you want to plug at the top? Um, no, not particularly. I mean, I should just point out for um, the presumably majority who don't know that um, in my normal life, um, I am a, um, and I'm, a, I'm an academic and I teach um, Latin and ancient Greek, uh, which I think I'm probably the only person who writes a lot about COVID. <laughs> yeah um that's very cool I, I maybe i'll ask you more about that when we have the kind of second half so i just wanted to read the tweet just so we could uh just everyone could hear what it was well so and just keep a, in mind that it, it was a thread as well but i think it was the the open kind of opening tweet that maybe um you know got the most attention or that people kind of um took issue yeah. with yeah, so it reads, it needs to be understood that the true motivation of the lockdown forced vaccination COVID response was saving lives. Saving lives wasn't a smokescreen for some other hidden plan. Um, and I don't see the rest of the thread now, but that's but that was the main uh, kind of point of the thread. Right. Um, yeah, do so you want... So it was, I guess it kind of... Uh, you know, obviously a lot of our friends and stuff responded. Um, and then there was a lot of kind of like people saying, you're not understanding his point and blah, blah, blah. Uh, so, you know, I was just, yeah, maybe we, you could start with just kind of explaining what your point yeah. was. So that could be like a story. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, it was one of those completely random Twitter moments because I mean, I, I tweet about COVID maybe five or six days a week. And essentially I tend to say things along the same lines. Um, and, you know, I wasn't writing this and thinking, oh, this will really stir people up and, um, you know, get lots of, get ratioed and so forth. So that's exactly what happened. Um, and uh, it, was just, it was just crazy. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, I think the fact that it was a thread is key in that I think a lot of people who responded and who retweeted um, calling me an idiot um, didn't read the whole thread. Um, 
And that doesn't mean that the disagreement with the first tweet wasn't there, wasn't substantial, but I do think that it was widely taken as here's somebody who just wants to set out an apology for how nice and cuddly the COVID response was and um, is basically just praising it. Um, and that, I mean, unambiguously was not mm -hmm. the case. Um, but um, I guess that, you know, the, the original statement wasn't ironic. Um, it is something that I mean. Now, the phrase saving lives is actually very crucial. I'm sure we'll get to that in more detail. But in the basic sense that, you know, there's any, any number of narratives, which I'm sure we'll get to, about how the stated aims of the COVID response, which I think we can all agree were to save lives and also to protect medical systems, where those were the two aims that were generally promoted by everyone in government and media and, you know, Twitter epidemiology who was um, saying we have to do these lockdowns and these mask mandates and these um, vaccinations and vaccine mandates. And all that. I mean, they were all saying the reason we're doing this is to save people's lives from COVID. Um, and particularly the beginning, there was also a lot of talk about protecting medical systems, which again is ex in extenso means saving lives. Right? Why do we protect medical systems? so that when people get hit by a car, the ER isn't full of COVID people and they can't get treatment and so forth. So we come back to saving lives. And so, you know, the point that is stated in the first tweet in the thread that that was the genuine motivation um, is something I, I believe. I mean, I then um, put some reservations on that in terms of saying, of course, not every single person, um, but as opposed to some idea that this was all a mechanism or a veil for some other thing that the people promoting the response were trying to do. Um, and um, I realized that many people think otherwise, including perhaps you gentlemen to some extent. Um, and in that, that I do disagree, and I do disagree with counter narratives about the COVID response that would have it to be um, a sort of conspiracy, I guess. I mean, I don't have, you know, I realize that as soon as you say conspiracy, it sounds like you're somebody who goes around calling everyone a conspiracy theorist, uh, which I'm not, but there are certain specific kinds of conspiracy, um, if that's a good word, or just sort of secondary agenda narratives that I don't buy into. Is that helpful to start with? Yeah, that's helpful. I'm actually going to let A talk most of the time, because I'm going to be honest, uh, you know, we are <laughs> separate people and I haven't thought about this in a lot of depth. So I'm probably going to listen a, a little bit because I don't I don't have a fully formed opinion. But A, you you did take some umbrage with it. So why don't why don't you talk about what was? Yeah, sorry, guys, just a second. I just need to go. To oh, later. good. Oh, no problem. No problem. It's very armband for us. <laughs> Uh, no worries. No, it's okay. I was saying it's very on brand for us not having a lighter or trying to, yeah, anyway. <laughs> go, go ahead. Yeah. So, um, well, yeah, I, I think, okay. So, first of all, I, I just wanted to say that I do think I was, I understood what you were saying with your tweet. And I, I, I did not understand you to mean uh, I didn't think that you were being an apologist for the COVID regime or anything like that. Like, I, I don't think that you were saying that the lockdowns were good, which anyone who follows your account should know that. Um, but I, 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 yeah. So basically what I, I took umbrage with personally was just your claim that, um, 
saving lives was not a smokescreen for some other purpose. I mean, certainly I would agree that there are many true believers, right? Um, like, uh, I, I don't dispute that at all. Um, and that, that those people were a key um, sort of vector for administering all the lockdown measures and um, and propagandizing everyone such that they would comply with it. Um, you know, like for just as an example, like I, I live in a, you know, uh, in, in urban liberal area here and we have a local kind of public health um, dictator, essentially, uh, at least during the COVID years. Um, and, you know, she was putting out these mandates and seemingly j just gleefully delighting in it and believing that she was an amazing person. And and no, I have no doubt that she believes that masks work, that vaccines work, that we need to band together to stop the spread, would slow, you know, 15 days to slow the spread. I'm sure she was on board with all of it genuinely believed it a believer in the science all this okay so to me it's like there's sort of a separation between um what people talk about with like maybe someone like illich and his type of explanation for um this phenomenon um or, or like agamben is another one that people talk about with like the state of exception and everything to me these are better explanations for why people believed and complied with the regime rather than an explanation for the motivations of the regime seeking to impose the lockdowns on the population. Um, and I mean, I can I, I, I can get into some reasons about why I think that, but to me, it, it's it. There's so many layers of not only kind of misguided thinking, I guess, in how the pandemic was rolled out, but clear examples of deceit and lies on the part of the people who were rolling out these lockdown and vaccines. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that aspect. And I can get into specific examples yeah. if you would like, or, or but if you want to just respond to that. No, I mean, we probably should get into specifics in due course, mm -hmm. but I, I think I should address mm -hmm. that generally. Uh, now, there's one thing I want to say right away, because it's the least self-evident part of uh, what I have to say about this in these terms, and it doesn't directly address your point, but I want, I want to make sure I get set at this point, is that almost everybody who was critical of the tweet um, started from the assumption that I, in writing the tweet, saw this aim of quote-unquote saving lives as a good thing. And in ways that need to be specified, I do not. Saving lives in the way that it's meant um, by, as you say, the true believers in the COVID regime is not a project I support. So I want to, we'll get back to that, I hope, but I wanted to um, specify that. Um, specify that now because otherwise um, the argument will be misunderstood to some extent. Now, I think that where we definitely agree is in terms of um, the sort of, if you will, local implementation of um, the regime, if we're going to call it that. I mean, you've given your example, an example that would be obvious to me because I'm an academic in the UK is, you know, 
if you look at universities in the UK, every they were, there wasn't any sort of overall rule about what they had to do, but every single one of them basically shut down and then reopened slowly and had all these exciting protocols with masks and one-way systems and stickers on the floor and um, some of them made you test every day and you know had no, no UK university quite had a vaccine mandate, but some came pretty close. And you know, like I can tell you what sort of people within the structures of universities were setting these things up. And, um, you know, I have no doubt that um, what was motivating them was very much a belief in this project of saving lives um, in ways that would be susceptible to the kind of critiques from Ngamba and Illich that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. So, and I think that, you know, this is important in the sense that um, the reality of the COVID regime for everybody really um, at least in these sort of big, complicated Western countries um, with a lot of layers of power and a lot of interlocking structures was the implementation at that mm -hmm. level. Um, you know, the uh, even if we concede that um, there were sort of other essential aims of put at the highest level, um, the fact that that then, you know, manifested as realities we had we had to live through was because um, at all the levels beneath, people were, were signed up to the Saving Lives Project, whether or not mm -hmm. that was the genuine source. Um, so, you know, even if one disagrees with my statement, no, some people would say, no, everyone who did any of this is just part of these evil plans, uh, but I think that that's very hard to sustain. But I would say that if we say, you know, even if one disagrees with my statement when we're talking about um, the sort of locus of ultimate power, it's still the case that in as much as you or I experienced um, COVID restrictions, the people who are directly making the decisions that um, affected us would mostly be people who were on board for this project of safety. Mm -hmm. So I think we can have, we can have common mm -hmm. ground there. Um, I guess that, you know, I am of course not denying that lies were told. Um, of all sorts. I mean, I think one then has to distinguish between um, lies and sort of interpretations, you know. So um, let me use an example that, um, you know, one of the things in which the COVID debate was sort of very um, enraged from very early on was the question of masks and the effectiveness of masks. Um, and a lot of people, as it were, on our side would say, well, you know, an enormous number of lies were told about masks. We were told that, you know, masks worked and that's not true. And we were told that the science was behind the effectiveness of masks and that's not true, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, that kind of statement is accurate in the sense that, yes, if you do a meta-analysis of mask studies, you can see that um, the, they don't, the evidence is, is poor for them having any efficacy and the biggest trials that were done in Denmark and Bangladesh and so forth didn't come up with any um, particularly convincing results. Um, and the sort of overall physics of viral particles, which is you know, the details are beyond me, but doesn't really suggest that wearing a sock over your face is going to protect you. But it's also the case that, you know, a question like do masks work is so complex, so hard to um, get a definitive answer on. It's very hard to say no individual was ever protected from a specific COVID infection 
because they had an N95 on. So that never happened. Is it, I'm not saying it's impossible to prove, but I don't think it has been proven. And so to some extent, um, you know, I'm not sure it's, it's very helpful to qualify that kind of statement as a lie, um, point blank, but as a particularly slanted um, view of certain scientific questions. Um, and, you know, I, I, I say very many, many times on Twitter that, you know, if you're going to make all your arguments against these things on the basis of data, you're always a hostage to the next study. And you're also both, on the one hand, saying the scientific um, systems are largely broken, except when they agree with me, and then they're, then I can trust them. Um, but sorry, this is all a little bit by the by, as opposed to your central point. And I guess my resistance to what you're saying is that we keep on having to move backwards the locus of um, this sort of what's behind the smokescreen. So if we say, well, it wasn't at the level of, you know, the official at my university, and it wasn't at the level of the municipal official, and it wasn't at the level of, well, maybe it was a state governor, maybe it's, it's like, where is it? Where are these people who are the ones with the other plan? Um, and ultimately, I just struggle to believe that those people exist. Um, I mean, I don't mean that there's nobody in any of these bureaucracies or governments who wasn't a son of a bitch who really was just um, out to make a buck or out to roll out, um, extend power. There always are such people, but that overall, you know, when Trump and his advisors or Biden and his advisors or whoever is behind them sits around and when the doors are finally closed, um, and the windows are shut, um, they say, ah, ha, ha, there's this other thing we're really going to do. I just really struggle with that scenario. And I'm not sure that's quite what you mean, but if that's not what you mean. I guess I'd like some understanding of how you think this works in terms mm -hmm. of these ulterior different motives. Yeah. And so, I mean, this, this discussion has the potential to open up like infinite cans of worms. Um, <laughs> but, um, I guess I can just kind of share my perspective of um, thinking about it maybe in a broader kind of historical sense where we're not just talking about the COVID-19 pandemic, um, but we're looking at what, um, in my opinion, there's lots of evidence for um, essentially uh what could be called a, a secret government that, you know, it, it sounds very, I don't know, um, you know, like Alex Jones or something. But um, in my opinion, that type of framing is actually part of a kind of disinformation um, project that seeks to cast anyone who basically disagrees with the official narrative on these issues as a crazy conspiracy theorist who uh, really shouldn't be um, regarded with any seriousness. So, and when I say secret government, I I don't necessarily mean that there's like um, a, a board of directors who sits around and issues um, dictates, but that basically what um, most people in in like Western you know 
republics or democracies, so-called. Um, what, what we tend to think of politics um, and the government is, is largely a smokescreen, um, essentially a distraction, which basically um, has people arguing about oh, X policy versus Y policy and, oh, those other people, the, the uh, Republicans are driving this country to shit. And if you watch Fox News, then you think it's the Democrats who are running the country into shit and um, not so much focusing on the actual kind of institutions that actually uh, wield power in a meaningful way. And um, those institutions, in my opinion, I would consider one, um, the defense industry, um, uh, which is wrapped up with intelligence, um, the financial industry. Uh, well, I suppose all of these are wrapped up with, with um, intelligence. But we have uh, defense, finance, tech, um, and tech coming into it with things like the censorship regime that came up during COVID um, and controlled what could be could and couldn't be said, official truth and official untruth, things like that. Um, and uh, pharma being another one, um, wanting everyone to essentially be reliant on as many one-a-day pills and injections and, you know, uh, and things like that as as we can have and you know uh, th and this is where we get into the can of worms because there's just so much um debate that you know it, it's a hard thing for people to um take seriously if you haven't really looked into it very much but in my opinion i'll just lay it out there's a history of essentially these large-scale psychological operations the most recent significant one being covid 19 uh, that are used by these institutions to um, guide uh, human behavior to usher in new laws that in general, tend to strip away, um, you know, rights and liberties and freedom. And this is just the latest in a continuous stream of, of similar projects. I mean, going back, you could see the war on terror. Um, you could see even the Cold War itself as this kind of ideological um, kind of tool where you have people telling people they need to hide under their desks to survive a, a nuclear attack, um, you know. Um, and, yeah, so so I guess that's my... I, I don't know if it's a long or a short answer to your question of who are the conspirators. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, um, well, clearly you're an Alex Jones. Okay, <laughs> so that's the end of this. No, um, so, I mean, I, we probably should, shouldn't go back and forth too much on this, but I'll, I'll just try and respond to that. Um, and, you know, like, I don't want to come across as sort of defending any of the sorts of people that you're, um, you're suspicious of in terms of them actually being noble and saintly and anything like that. I don't think they are. Um, I mean, you know, obviously every individual is different, but, um, you know, I, I haven't come on this podcast to praise the, praise the, um, the, drug industry or um or finance um and you know 
unquestionably, in some basic sense, um, the frisk for power is a very powerful motivation for people, um, and um, you know, particularly people who already find themselves in some level of power, it's always fair to assume they're going to want some more. Um, I think that, um, and um, you know, and also if you bring in profit, um, you know, and there's no question that if we look at something like the COVID vaccine and the statements that were made about that and the capture regulatory agencies, um, part of that story has to be the, the cutting of corners um, or really just the telling of lies in order to, to sell more vaccines. Um, I certainly wouldn't deny that. Um, I think that, you know, where I, there's, there's a few places where I, I take issue with a narrative like that. And to be clear, I don't, just like one more time, you know, I'm not arguing that anything I'm saying means that there's nothing to really worry about or that there's no risk of sort of reiterations of what happened under COVID that um, make our lives more and more oppressive and more and more subject to, to authoritarian control. I think those are absolutely very real risks. Um, so, you know, nothing about this original tweet that prompted all this was meant to be reassuring. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think everyone who took it that way which I appreciate you didn't, but misunderstood it. Um, so, I mean, I guess I guess my concern with the um, the sort of um, analysis you have, well, there's a few of them. So, firstly, I'm always a little skeptical about narratives about psyops um, because I think they assume a sort of um, a sort of, on the one hand, expertise on the part of the people at the sort of puppet master end, and then on the other hand, a sort of, um, you know, basically, you know, powerless puppet-like nature for the rest of us on the receiving end. And, um, and um, you know, there's obviously some truth to that. That's why it's a powerful image. But it seems to me that, by and large, the relationship between a propaganda move that's successful and the people who propagandized is much more symbiotic. Um, so, you know, if you will, like for me, the reason, even if we leave aside the question of motivation for a second, the reason that the sort of top-down messaging and censorship about, um, about COVID and about having to do these lockdowns and masks and vaccines to stop it was so effective, wasn't in my opinion because of incredibly masterful propaganda machine with all these expert nudge techniques and that kind of thing. I mean, the basic propaganda tools were extremely simple just to make everybody terrified. Uh, it was hardly some, uh, <laughs> hardly some incredibly subtle strategies, you know, tell people they're going to die and they're going to make other people die and they'll get upset. You know, um, it's, it's, it's the psyop of the playground, playground bully. Um, but, it's the resonance that that messaging finds um, in the people that it's directed to that gives it its power. Um, and, you know, in, like in other, in other times and places, you could try the same messaging and you wouldn't have any effect because you, there, there's just there's social situations where you tell people you all need to lock your, your elders up and never see them again. And they'd say, well, that's crazy. We're not going to do that. So it's only going to really work if it's playing into something that's already there. 
Well, and um, and I do agree uh, with that, and you can even you can even mm-hmm. see that with what, in my opinion, were essentially like, I don't know if you want to call them previous attempts, abor- aborted attempts, or um, feelers, or however you want to call it, but there were essentially previous pandemics that um, that were tried and really never took off to the same degree with with like the h1n1 swine flu bird flu um and and um i don't know you know what i think there it's a very interesting question to think about why that didn't spin out into this type of global pandemic where everyone's willing to lock down and mask up um for basically um a similar type of flu-like virus. So I, I agree that there had to be um, kind of conditions, and you can even see that with, like, um, the climate change uh, uh, propaganda push that's happening right now and has been happening to varying degrees for, what, 50 years or so. And it never really... It doesn't have the same sticking power where it really like you know people will talk about it and get upset oh yeah it's really hot or whatever but it doesn't have the same thing where you can get people to lock themselves like except for i mean except for what we saw recently in new york where they they did get people to lock themselves in their house because of the the smoke Yeah, I mean, the apparatus was basically in place, right? They could easily move school online. They could easily tell people to stay inside. All those all those things that were built up during COVID were in place, and they, and they did it. They did it for, I mean, it was two days. I'm not saying they did it for as long as they did it for COVID, but, you know, they definitely had built an apparatus that made it possible to tell people to shelter in place, which is... Yeah, I mean, it, it's... Sure. Um... You know, are you, uh, Daniel, are you familiar with, you know, because uh, it sounds like you're not, you by and large kind of reject or at least don't uh, str- warmly embrace this kind of conspiracy narrative. But are you aware of, like, for example, these uh, Rockefeller Foundation uh, pandemic documents from like 2010 where they laid out the this like lockstep scenario where they talk about you know governments uh using pandemics to usher in authoritarian control and trying to make everyone take vaccines and they even calculated it in that there would be resistance and misinformation and all the things like that yeah i'm aware of some of this stuff i mean Mm -hmm. i'm certainly not you know, as well read it in this material as you. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to interpret that a bit differently from how you would, and you know, with the caveat that you, you may re- be referring to specific documents that wouldn't meet my interpretation. But, um, you know, one of the things that, again, gets said a lot, and indeed that a lot of people wrote in response to my tweet that so irritated people is, um, well, one of the ways you can tell that this was not all on the level is that it discarded all the public health mm-hmm. plans that were, you know, the norm. And, you know, there was this sort of group of documents that were cited endlessly from the WHO from a few years ago and so forth that were imposing lockdowns. But 
I mean, I just think that that, that picture is too one-sided and that it's precisely the sorts of documents to which you're, you're referring that show that while the kind of strategy we adapted, we adopted, our government adopted was not the sort of mainstream, it was well within the range of things that public health fanatics were thinking about. Um, and, you know, it's like that, it's, it's a mistake to think that public health bureaucracies and vaccine bureaucracies were just these benign forces that somehow got corrupted all of a sudden in 2020 that the control of populations has always been part of the public health agenda. Um, mm -hmm. you know, the entire history of vaccination is, among other things, about the control of populations for their own good, as seen by the people doing it. Um, and so these authoritarian, you know, I tend to see these authoritarian tendencies and moves not as a corruption of an otherwise noble project, but as an inbuilt part of what happens when you try and, you know, govern populations health um, mm -hmm. from the top. And I agree and that's, that's with you. Critique, of course. Oh, go ahead. Q. Can I ask just a quick question? Cause I feel like I want to make sure that uh, we get to this. Cause it, it's interesting that you, what you said earlier that just because you think that the motivation was saving lives, you don't think that that's a good or like moral or ethical thing. Um, and I wanted to give you a chance to talk about that because that's, that's what, you know, David was mentioning to me, like in a private chat. And that's what I thought that was interesting that like saving lives is not the greatest good necessarily. And that was, and that, that's something people missed in your point. I wanted to give you a chance to talk about that. So. Okay. Yeah. Are you guys both happy for me to address that a bit now? Sure. Yeah. That's uh, what I was going to bring up as well. Okay, great. So, I mean, I should say that, you know, the sort of, Sense, becoming sensitive to this language of saving lives is something that's fairly recent for me. Um, it's something that, in essence, I've learned from um, somebody I recorded a podcast with, um, who you guys like, probably may or may not be familiar with, but this person who tweets under the name of medical nemesis, medical mm -hmm. underscore nemesis, um, and who's very much an Elitian um, and um, has been uh, questioning this phrase of saving lives for a long time, even before COVID, and she's a practicing medic of some sort, so this is probably relevant, um, not just to her thought, but to, to how she works. Um, at one point, she she wrote that the quickest way to get blocked by a doctor on Twitter is to ask, why is it good to save a life? Um, so I think that, you know, we have to think about what this phrase has come to mean. And, you know, when we talk about, you know, saving someone's life, there's a sort of obvious scenario where I'm thinking of the opening scene of It's a Wonderful Life and the little kid is going to drown in the ice and the guy goes and saves him. And, you know, obviously in some basic human sense, um, if we're all brothers and sisters, that is a good. Um, but saving lives in terms of the medical model, firstly, um, it can vary um, so I think there's, there's two things that are essential here. Firstly, we, well, maybe three things. We've got this abstraction that's created. We start talking about lives rather than people. And I think that, you know, some people say, well, that's just a linguistic detail. It doesn't really matter. But I would say, well, if it doesn't matter, why is it always lives and never people? Why are we always saying vaccines save lives, lockdowns save lives, 
dropping a nuclear bomb over Hiroshima saves lives. Mm -hmm. Why are we never talking about men and women and children who are actually putatively getting saved? Um, and you know, like the very concrete example of this is that, you know, some of the people who were the greatest focus of the COVID response were the people who were most vulnerable, and particularly the elderly. Um, and you know, we had these endless discussions about did this country, that country, protect their care homes well, and why were there so many deaths in care homes, and did you vaccinate enough people? in the uh, target group and so forth. And then, you know, these comparisons of charts, we had one I think this week between Republicans and Democrats in the US and who saved the most lives, et cetera. <laughs> um, and as long as you just think of it as lives, as statistics, as death rates, you become blind to what actually was happening in the name of saving these people's lives, which is, uh, you know, we were taking the oldest people um, in our communities and saying, you have to be in forced isolation for some unconscionable amount of time. Um, and, you know, that's not something that it's right to do to a person. And if you are able to s try and see the person rather than the life, mm -hmm. then I think you're that much less prone to do that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and the same just in general, in terms of the, um, you know, endless, the sort of routine assumption that every illness has to be treated um, and every life has to be kept going through medicine. Um, you know, if medicine is treating lives and treating illnesses, then those are always going to be the answers. Whereas if a medicine means a doctor and a patient, then we can start talking about what does this person want? How does this person maybe want to die? How much of their, and, final part of their life that they want to be medicalized and you know the individual actually comes back into this so that's one way in which i think saving lives um becomes an anti-human project now the the other point um which i think gets easily gets obliterated and this is very much from the language of vaccination that then was um transported back into um covid lockdowns and then in due course of covid vaccines and you know when people talk about a vaccine, they will always say, um, you know, the smallpox vaccine or the malaria vaccine saved lives. And they will almost always give you numbers. They'll say the polio vaccine saves however many million um, children a year and so forth. Um, and, or lives of children. Um, and, you know, if you try to understand what a statement like that means, you realize that actually the whole thing is really an exercise in uh, hypothesis construction mm -hmm. because what we're saying is if we hadn't done this then x number of people in my alternative timeline would have been exposed to this virus or i guess we are talking about viruses here or you know if we go back to harishima would have had to fight these battles whatever it might be of which x number would then have died so the whole thing is not um, in any way a factual statement. It's a series of scenarios in an alternative reality. So the lives being saved aren't, again, in any concrete sense, people. Um, and so I just think that you know, it doesn't mean that this is never a useful tool for thinking, but I think that the way in which it gets reified um, basically creates only two paths the path where we do what we did 
and then the alternate path where whatever number I want to choose to prove my case of people die. Um, whereas, firstly, the alternate path doesn't, in fact, exist. And secondly, you know, the range of other things that could have happened in imaginary other histories is actually infinite. Um, and so, you know, if we had a lockdown, it doesn't really mean anything to say if we had a lockdown, X number of people would have died. Mm-hmm. If we had a lockdown, we would be in a different history where all sorts of different things could have happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, in as much as possible, it's best to always talk about what actually did happen and rather than um, what one's preferred scenario for what could have happened. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Definitely. Yeah, and I, the, the saving lives thing is is definitely relevant. And that, I think, is something that a lot of people like kind of um, use as a criticism against people with like my perspective or whatever, like the conspiracy approach was that. So if I believed that the actual purpose of the pandemic was to save lives, um, would that have justified it? And for me personally, it's a no. I mean, it's not that I'm not saying that. I'm not saying if that the government was made of good faith actors that it would have been okay to do all that in the name of saving lives. Um, I reject that. And I, but to me, it's like, no, it's just on its face, it's, it's a human rights crime. I mean, it's, but even, but aside from that, I don't think that the actual, the um, sort of uh, official justification was the actual underlying motivation. Um, But I, I have some topics that I just kind of wanted to ask you about um, in regards to... Okay, I'd be very happy to do that, but let me just add one point, uh, maybe to close this loop, is that I guess my sort of hesitancy beyond sort of questions of how one interprets evidence Mm -hmm. um, about your your approach about true motivation is that what worries me most about it is that it tends to obscure how dangerous the stated motivations are. So I think that, you know, and you know, this, this is, I feel, sort of what's significant about people getting so annoyed about my tweet is that, you know, the reason it made so many people so mad, or one of the reasons is that, on, and this is, I think, the thing that David himself um, said when he commented on this episode, is that we basically, many, many of us are on board for this project of saving lives. Mm-hmm. And if we can be convinced that that really is what's going on, then we'll be ready to do more horrible things. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, you know, it's a little bit, um, can be, there's a risk of displacing what the, the darkness of this threat of saving lives as a overall dominating political project um, by saying, well, there may be other things that they actually have mm-hmm. in mind. Even if that is the only thing that they have in mind, or if that really is, as I maintain, the driving force, that is very dangerous. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I absolutely agree with that. Um, and from my perspective, just one man's opinion, but is that the based on what I know now, 
any type of sweeping initiative like this that the government and whatever, who all these other forces undertake to, uh, in the name of saving lives, I will reject flat out as, I mean, <laughs> um, uh, as, and will not buy for a second that that is the true motivation. Um, but, um, uh, so I just wanted to kind of get like, what is your take on, for example, like the great efforts that went into censoring any discussion of the origin of the virus, for example, whether it was, um, came from a lab or which, which now seems to be the case, or at least it, even the official line is that it's a possibility, right? But in the beginning, uh, you were not allowed to touch that. It was deemed racist, even though the wet market Chinese people eat weird food theory was not racist for some reason. Um, you know, why, what, if it's just about saving lives, then why can't we talk about, you know, even if it's an oops, my bad, we really, we made this and then really it came out by accident. Why can't that be discussed? Yeah. Um, well, as somebody who owns a herd of pangolins, I found the, uh, <laughs> the anti-pangolin discourse very offensive. No. Um, so that this is interesting now um i obviously have read the same stuff you guys have and don't know any more um i and you know i think like anyone who isn't totally captured i think that the, the you know the balance like it's very much for anyone who thinks that covid had nothing to do with the the wuhan institute of virology to prove their point like the balance of the balance of probability is very heavily in favor of a lab leak um, whether it's then in favor of gain of function is, is a bit beyond me, but I don't think the people claiming that are crazy. Um, they, they clearly make a coherent case, and they clearly included some of the people who published the articles saying that was absolutely impossible, so uh, we have a problem. Now, I mean, I think the lab leak is a little bit, in a way, a bit separate, and then I'll try, I'll try and bring it back in, but, you know, you know the lab leak is... Um, or the um, effort to to cover up um, the possibility or the high probability of a lab leak um, is very clearly was very clearly a conspiracy in any reasonable sense thereof. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there was an organized group of people who were planning to um, launch a sort of campaign of lies in order to to cover up what they thought had happened. It's you know, we've yet to see any evidence that anyone on the Western side actually knew what had happened, um, which isn't to say that no one did, but none of these people like Christian Anderson and even um, Jeremy Farrar seem to have known. They seem to have, you know, known all the things we now know about what kind of research was going on and th that it was the security protocols were right and so forth. But um, we haven't seen any, the public hasn't seen any documents indicating um, they had inside knowledge of, you know, the, the institute oh are you still with us daniel looks like you oh he dropped off <laughs> see if he jumps back in email him to email him to click on the same link again thanks hi i'm really sorry about that my browser suddenly crashed oh no worries <laughs> it's okay a is an amazing guru none of this will work. yeah i'll i'll edit everything to make it Flow, Flash, yeah. Flash, maybe some of it, maybe some of it, man. <laughs> okay. I'll edit out control. all the smart stuff you say and make you sound. 
<laughs> just no, leave it to saving lives is bad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, wanna, sorry, shall I continue where I left yeah, off? Yeah, yeah. Just... Yeah, we want you to continue where you left off. And then even if A hops off, uh, please stay on because I have some Catholic questions for you. So. Yeah, I'll be very glad to do so. Um, so, yeah, it was a conspiracy. I don't think there's a huge mystery about what motivated it. Um, you know, basically, you've got a bunch of people who are neck deep in the kind of research they think probably um, caused this caused this pandemic to happen. And they'd um, and also a bunch of, you know, federal U.S. money going into this, probably with some um, some interest in, in militarizing it. And it was, you know, they didn't want the public to know that. Um, that doesn't in itself seem to me to require a deeper explanation of why they tried to cover this up. Um, but to me, if I you accept that, it, that, it's like, well, they they know this, you know, mysterious new virus is going in around. If they wanted to, and but we now know that it essentially really wasn't very harmful to most people, only if you were very old and infirm or, you know, um, very sick, right? Um, which is basically applies to any type of illness, right? That, you're, that those are the people who are going to be at risk. Um, why would they spin this global pandemic out of it instead of just b basically trying to f push it under the radar and say, uh, keep living your lives as normal, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's a good question. Um, I think the, and, you know, obviously if they were trying to do a cover-up, it's backfired hugely. Mm -hmm. um, and I hadn't actually thought this, but it's an interesting point that if the entire messaging had just been to make as little of it as possible, <laughs> it's it probably it may be the case that it would have taken much longer for this to come out, um, and also that people would have cared much less. <laughs> you know, um, if we had just lived our lives as normal, and um, probably, you know, like you don't actually notice on a personal level if more eighty-five-year-olds are dying this okay. year than than last year. Right. Um, I say, oh, I got out of a lab. You know, there's there's other Mind just tell you, there's previous um, strains of flu and so forth that quite possibly came out of labs, and mm -hmm. that's barely in the public consciousness because it didn't it didn't survive right. the way people lived. Exactly. Um, so I think that you know, if it was if you're going to say what well, was a coordinated move to, um, well, you, there's various narratives, but you know, I think my answer is that um, you know, partly I would guess, although this is speculative, that the suspicion that it had been a lab leak and also a lab leak for the engineered virus, um, which is something that there's no question that officials in the West thought could be the case, made them more panicky. Um, that, you know, there was a feeling that this couldn't be covered up forever. Um, and, you know, possibly also a certain level of guilt. What, what have we done? And how can we minimize the damage? So I suspect that the sort of, you know, if you take my somewhat less um, hidden motivations of creation than yours, that the sort of, you know, the feverish climate in which decisions were being made, the idea that this, this was somebody's fault and the fault of people very close to the ones making the decisions, or in some cases the same people, um, played some role in the sort of fantasy of trying to clamp down on the virus. Um, because, you know, if you broke it, you want to try and fix it. Um, so, yeah, beyond that, I just think that, you know, public health has become more ambitious. Um, that, you know, 
people, probably these officials wouldn't have tried to do this 20 years ago. As you said, there were some attempts, but I don't think they were on the same scale. And also, this is quite a separate point, but you know, the internet has made things possible that never would have been before. Mm -hmm. So the level to which you Remote can shut work. down society yeah, exactly. um, is much greater. And then, you know, once you can, the temptation to do it is going to be that much bigger. So what you're saying is they want us all in the metaverse. They want to plug us into the pods. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, uh, uh, I'm not sure about a they, but you know, this is, you know, one of the sort of clearly driving forces in our world is for us to uh, live more and more of our lives as sort of digital avatars. And it's something that, you know, not just that they are trying to do it, but it's something we're all constantly doing to ourselves by being in the metaverse <laughs> um, half of our days. So I've got to jump off here a little bit. You two should definitely keep going. And if I'm if my thing wraps up quickly, I'll I'll try to jump back on. Um, but just as a, a my um, parting words, and I, I don't want to uh, maybe ruin your life um, by sending you down. Um, these horrible rabbit holes. But um, the one thing I would just encourage you to do is maybe learn more about some of these other um, events that I've alluded to and um, the way um, the underlying kind of uh, machinations worked with one. I don't know if Q, if you have any uh, b better ideas, but one, one example of a great book that t covers this is the uh, Wendy S painting book aberration in the heartland of the real um which is about um which is about uh timothy mcveigh um the uh individual who is uh supposed to be responsible for the oklahoma city bombing and um it is very interesting um, going. It's even relates, to, uh, connects it to vaccines and things. And this book came out in 2016 before the pandemic or, or anything. So it's very interesting. And she's, and she's a, she's a leftist. So mm -hmm. we can't even, she, we're, she's not even a right wing conspiracy person. Like we get accused of being. Um, so. But anyways, yeah. Thanks so much, Daniel. And I am going to try to jump back on uh, if, if you're still going, but. Uh, okay. I yeah, hope you can. Yeah. All right. <laughs> All right. So what I wanted to ask you about, and I'm very curious about, is um, some of the trad Catholic mm -hmm. stuff um, that you're in, that you're into. So I'll just give you a quick background. Like, so I, you know, I was raised Catholic, um, like baptized, confirmation, uh, first communion, the whole thing, um, and then I like kind of you know, I went to like liberal arts school and sort of had like an agnostic atheist sort of twenties. And then I'm not even going to pretend that this wasn't partially from just kind of like what was happening on Twitter, but I got kind of like reinterested in Catholicism um, during the pandemic, which I think was true of a lot of uh, kind of, you know, Catholic people who were raised Catholic. There was kind of like a trend of like, oh, there's like this renewed interest in it. And people in New York were going to Latin mass all of a sudden. And like, yeah. you know what I mean? So I started doing some of that. Um, I started going to confession again. I became kind of like reinterested in uh, Catholicism. Um, and so I was just, but I, you know, I obviously still have some things that are uh, very much not uh, traditional about me at all. I live with a, a man um, I'm in a long-term relationship with one. So, you know, I'm not like following some like perfect trad path, 
like mm-hmm. back to the earth, like farm life or anything like that. Um, so I don't know. I, that's just a little bit about me. So you kind of know where I'm coming from. But I was just curious because someone had said to me that you were one of like the most interesting voices to them on kind of like Tradcath Twitter. Um, and I haven't read a lot of your tweets, so I don't really know like what your whole thing is. So I, I, because to be perfectly honest, I became aware of you when this whole thing was happening with A only a couple of days ago. So I'm not like, I'm not like all looped into your, uh, to, to what you talk about in regards uh. to the Catholic thing. But I wanted to ask, I wanted to ask about it and ask why, you know, someone feels that you're a really interesting voice in that sphere. sphere. I don't know if you're a convert. I don't know if you were raised Catholic. Sure. I don't know if there's like a wife and like seven, seven babies behind you somewhere that I just can't see. Uh-huh. Like, I, you know, I don't know what your whole thing is. So I wanted to ask about sure, that. Sure, great. Um, <laughs> so, uh, sorry, I I wasn't expecting this, which is not a problem. It's just I don't, ha- I don't have a sort of a spiel to mind. Um, I, I'm just absolutely shocked and appalled you weren't aware of my Twitter account before a few days ago. Uh, like Brett, well, were you aware of me? I highly doubt it. Um, no, okay. So, um, yeah, I, I was basically raised Catholic. Um, I mean, there's some complications in my family history, which I won't go into, but certainly um, I, I was, uh, you know, I was taken to Mass as a kid. Um, and unlike, I suppose, you know, different from your story and different from the story of many people who were, I never really stopped. So, um, I have been a practicing Catholic pretty much without interruption, um, since I was about 18. Um, there there was a, there was a point during the lockdowns where I was sort of, did stop going to church for a while, um, the opposite of you, um, because I, I was in a bad way, but, that's been the only substantial interruption. Um, I, I mean, I'm a bit, um, you know, I certainly don't think of myself as someone on on Tradcalf Twitter. Um, I, you know, there's probably a few people who would be within that um, within that sphere who inter interlock with me, but I don't, you know, I don't sort of tweet about the Latin Mass and um, even a great deal about about the church. I mean, I identify myself as a Catholic in my, in my Twitter bio, and um, I do um, often um, bring, you know, my my critique of of the COVID response of other things is very explicitly um, faith-based, if you will. Um, but, you know, I, I guess I'm, you know, my sort of my my daily life as a Catholic is not um, particularly extraordinary. I just you know I go to church on Sundays, um, and that sort of thing. Um, but I'm not part of any um, either online or offline Catholic movement type thing, um, and really never have been. Um, so you know I've always I've always been practicing, um, and um, Certainly, the you know the things I write about, the things I study, have been, have been very influenced by that. Um, and I've always been sort of also, yeah. I mean, not just going to church, but trying to um, as best I can to you know actually believe this stuff and live in accordance with it. Um, and you know, 
I guess I would say, you know, it's fundamental to how I try to make sense of the world. Um, and in that sense, you know, part of the reason that I feel I have something to say um, about the various things I write about publicly is because, um, you know, it does give a particular way of making sense. Um, so, yeah. Um, okay. So you're, you're like, you're like a man of, you're a man of simple faith. Like you believe you go to church, but you're not, I guess when I heard the term, he's really interesting on Tradcast Twitter. I was like, is he one of these like set of acantist people or he has these like crazy theological ideas, but maybe <laughs> no, I got I'm, the wrong idea. I don't know. I tried to be, but you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a man of, um, you know, I'm very critical of the, you know, inevitably because of um, what we've been through. I, I'm very critical of the current state of the church in terms of, you know, specifically the COVID response. The COVID response is an extremely big deal for me. Um, and, you know, the fact that the church is closed down um, and we're slow to reopen and, you know, basically you got the Pope telling everyone to get vaccinated, um, you know, all of this stuff was... Right. I was going to say one of the biggest things for me that really, like, freaked me out was the Pope... Um, vaccination coin. Yeah, I'm I don't know if you even like, saw that. Kind of from my mind, but yeah, yeah, it was like that was really terrifying to me. I mean, that was definitely something that made me feel a little bit like what A was talking about before, which is like, you know, is there some vast <laughs> conspiracy? I was like, why is there a what? Why is why is there a Pope vaccination <laughs> coin? Like, you know, that kind of. That kind of drove me a little bit insane because it just seemed so strange to me that that would even exist, you know? Well, so. any really good conspiracy theory should involve the Pope, so uh, we definitely need to get him in there. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, what can you say? Um, you know, because uh, I largely, among other things, study, um, study medieval history, um, you know, I have a sort of fairly detailed historical perspective on this and you know the, the thing that you you learn is that whatever is wrong with the world at any given time the the ability of the church to resist it like it's there but it's always much much weaker than one would hope um and so you know because one of the sort of afflicting um evils of our time is this sort of biomedical pseudo-religion you know, it would be great if I could say, you know, well, but the Catholics have stood up to every bit of that and will have nothing to do with it. But, you know, the church is just too wrapped up with the world as it as it has been for, for 1,500 years um, or longer to do more than sort of just, you know, like, be, have, you know, have, being a believing Catholic means you believe that the church can't be ultimately and definitively corrupted. And I believe that. But that ultimately and definitively is always sort of the kernel that that can't be broken, but it doesn't mean that sort of all the other layers of the nut aren't going to be shot through with whatever um, whatever is poisoning everything else. Um, so, so I mean, it's hard. You know, it would be easier if I could say, um, you know, like the Amish can. Well, yeah, um, you know, one of the things that gave me strength day to day in trying to to survive this horrible episode was that at least the church had my back. Um, but, you know, it's realistically not true. Um, the, you know, the churches where I normally went were closed down and then, you know, they were opening up with masks and all this, all this nonsense. And as you say, the Pope himself was 
producing vaccine coins. But, you know, um, again, so this will, I'm not sure, you're probably a bit younger than me, but, you know, I grew up in, in the era of John Paul II, St. John Paul II, um, may he pray for us. Um, and that was a time when people were very, very into the Pope, um, and particularly sort of people on the more traditionalist or orthodox um, edge of the church were, you know, was very much free cheers for the Pope and the Pope has got it right. And, you know, loyalty to the Pope is what really defines us. Um, and, you know, I think that it's easy to understand why in many ways, I mean, obviously there are valid criticisms of him, but in many ways, why John Paul II inspired that kind of, um, that kind of enthusiasm. Sorry, can you hear me? Because your screen's frozen. Okay, fine. Yeah, I can hear okay. you fine. Um, so, um, and, um, you know, to some extent that was then um, transferred in the immediate to Benedict XVI, who was, you know, very much, again, obviously there, there were problems, um, but um, he was very much his um, sort of second in command. And in some ways, the th some of the things people liked about St. John Paul were even more accentuated with Benedict, um, not all of them, but some of them. Um, and both of them were these sort of very heavy duty intellectuals um, who had written a lot of, um, hi, a, we're talking about the Pope, um, who had written a lot of um, very, very powerful and sort of rich Christian literature. Um, and, you know, the thing that I was somewhat suspicious of um, just, um, or maybe I'm rewriting history, but in any case, I would have been right to be somewhat suspicious of is that, you know, an, an overall sort of extreme level of enthusiasm for the Pope as an individual is eventually going to get you into trouble because, you know, you might have one or good, two or good Popes, but eventually you're going to have one who's an idiot. Um, and then... But wait, 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 wait. Let yeah. me ask you, let me back up for a second. Vatican so... <laughs> No, I just, I just, we're not even there yet. But if you, if you, okay, like if you say to be a practicing Catholic, you can't, ultimately you have to believe the church like at its core is its uncorruptible. Core, right. Is that right? You said something at its core. Okay. Is, is, how could a Pope be an idiot? Isn't, isn't, isn't the Pope, isn't, isn't the Pope, the isn't the Pope the core of the church like i'm just you know what i mean like i'm just kind of like i, I feel like there's a little bit of like well, some tension there, of course there. Tension, but um you know like obviously both of those things have to be true because otherwise you're wide up saying that no pope either that the church can be corrupted to its core or that no pope has ever been an idiot neither of those statements are going to stand up to five minutes of scrutiny well i mean the first one will but then you're going to wind up outside the faith so you can say well no the, the church um there's no level at which the church can resist fine. You know, obviously many people have felt that and left the church or have been unable to or unwilling to enter it. But if you are going to be within the church, then you cannot leave yourself hostage to the idea that every pope is a saint um, or even a wise man because, um, you know, firstly, it's just not realistic. Um, and secondly, we have, you know, the longest succession. I don't think any institution has had a longest succession, so we have pretty good records on several hundred popes and um, you know, we know perfectly well that, um, you know, some of them were great. A lot of them were just kind of the guy who was in the right place at the right time. And uh, some of them were villains. Um, and, you know, I'm not saying Francis is a villain. I, 
not that interested in him. Um, but um, so, you know, the, the idea that there's this incorruptible core, like, you know, it's fair to say, well, where exactly does that core reside? And I'd have to say, you know, ultimately it resides in heaven, but on earth, it's kind of that the institution as a whole in its various parts is never gonna completely collapse into heresy or collapse into, you know, just an institution of evil. Um, but it may or may not be at a given time that the Pope is one of the stronger bulwarks against that. Um, and, um, you know, I just don't think that there's any guarantee there is. You know, you know it is, it's not the case, like, as a Catholic, you're, you know, it's an article of faith that every Pope is never gonna say anything wrong um, or, you know, always going to be by and large a good man. Um, you know, you have to say, well, in some long-term providential sense, the, you know, when the Pope is chosen, it's not outside God's plan, um, but God's plans, um, you know, even to the eyes of faith are not knowable day to day. So, you know, you say, well, from a human level, this may not have been a good choice, but in some way or other, over the long history of the church, um, it doesn't mean that God has now abandoned it. Um, so, so, so to you, people who like, let's say people who are like really gladio pilled or who like, you know, are set of a cantus or whatever, like they're not what was your first example? because they believe, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, gladio, which is like the conspiracy that like the church and the mafia and like all the, you know, like Okay. Okay. So, but anyone, so let's just like put that aside. Anyone who believes that the church is currently or has been at other times like entirely corrupted is not truly a Catholic because once they believe that yeah. they're, I mean, they're outside I'm of this. to wander around to individuals and say, you're not a Catholic, you know, no, nobody, nobody on this earth achieves the perfect form of a Catholic, but they hold beliefs that are in themselves not Catholic. Yeah. So, you know, I, you know, okay. for me, like, it's very, it doesn't, you know, like, it's painful to live through, but it, it doesn't cause me any theological or conceptual problem to say, well, the current Pope really is very unimpressive. Um, whereas to start saying, well, the authority of um, the Sea of Peter is lost, and now it's this group of people, and I don't know, this church in Tennessee who are the true church like it's it's there that you're gonna you're gonna really um you know you're basically becoming a Protestant of, under a different heading um and kind of starting a new project which is different from what Catholicism was supposed to be there's another good book recommendation for you that uh, is uh Paul Williams Operation Gladio the unholy alliance between the Vatican the CIA and the mafia <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i feel like we're really i feel like we're really coming across <laughs> as conspiracy oh i i aim specifically aim to destigmatize this um this uh label but uh so i'll proudly embrace it good for you um it doesn't you know i know it doesn't bother me one way or the other um and you know i'm certainly not going to claim well the church has never had any connections with the mafia that would well okay so here i yeah. i have another uh catholic question for you like what do you think about this like 
how do you feel or maybe you don't care at all and it's fine if you don't care but how do how do you feel about this kind of like new push and kind of like america specifically in kind of liberal cities of like young people becoming interested again in this hyper traditional Catholicism because like I've you know I've gone to Latin mass many times at Church of the Holy Innocence there are 20 somethings there uh who look like they could be in a you know like in another life they could be in like uh-huh. a Brooklyn nightclub but the woman has the woman has like the modest dress on and the veil and the guys <laughs> you know it's like it's like people who clearly are kind of these yeah. like upper middle class uh you know kind of like urbanites who are turning to this very, very traditional type of Catholicism. Um, And I'm just curious what you think about it. Obviously, there's a level of like, you know, I think there's some people who are sort of Uh ironically doing it or whatever. It's, It's because, you know, our culture has gotten so perhaps hedonistic in some ways that now it's rebellious to uh, kind of have a type of conservatism. I think that that's a possibility, but there are certainly also Mm -hmm. like true believers um, who are very interested in this like pre Vatican II, um, you know, Catholicism and the, and the, the Pope I think himself has said that like he finds this concerning because those communities can get really insular Mm -hmm. really fast and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I don't know how much you've read about this, and it's perfectly fine if you if you don't have um, no, a whole I, lot of interest I'm happy in to it, talk about I'm it. just um, curious. I have a few thoughts. Um, so, you know, uh, okay, so uh, my, my feelings on this are, are kind of mixed. Now, I should say that, you know, I haven't, you know, I haven't been to New York in quite a few years. I, ha- I haven't witnessed this firsthand. Um, I'm aware of it in terms of it's something that I, I see mentions of on Twitter. I'm aware of some of the worlds it overlaps with. Um, and um you know it is reminiscent of um things that have been going on in london where where i've lived most of my life for a long time in terms of you know there's a very traditionalist church in london that has um really for for decades attracted maybe not sort of brooklyn hipster equivalents but you know they have the latin mass they have elements of the old liturgy and there's always been a sort of fairly substantial group of like younger cooler people who are into this but i mean this is not just like sort of a pre-internet thing but there's clearly parallels there um so i kind of so you know i really can't say like you know are these people for real is this just a stupid meme is it somewhere in between um I, you know i think that what you're saying that you know that there's a mix is very plausible um now beyond that i would say i have mixed feelings about it um in the sense that um you know, obviously, I'm all for the Latin Mass as a Latinist. Um, I don't have very strong feelings about the extent to which um, we could do with more of the Latin Mass. Um, I don't think that um, you know it's, it's sort of the, the magic bullet to get people coming back to church. Um, and you know, um, certainly there there are people in my life who who are um, practicing Catholics and don't know any Latin and just um, think that you know this is ridiculous. They would like to be able to understand what's being said and that's the end of the matter. And I, you know, I think that's a perfectly reasonable position. Um, I think that, you know, there is, um, there is a real, this is pretty obvious, but, um, you know, there's sort of dangers on both sides. There's a danger in sort of Catholicism being seen as a sort of, um, you know, fashion choice, which it's not. Um, so, you know, I think sort of the, 
you know, if you're, um, you're you know, this is something that um, conservative Catholics used to say about liberals, that they were engaging in quote unquote cafeteria Catholicism where you would choose the parts you wanted um, and leave, leave aside the parts that um, were gonna make your life difficult. And you know, any, anyone of any sort of stripe can find themselves indulging in that. And obviously that, that's always not great. Um, beyond that, what I would say as, you know, I'm someone who um, has never been a sort of church shopper. I've always gone to um, the church nearest to me and just put up with whatever, um, whatever that looked <laughs> like. And, uh, you know, I don't, I'm not troubled by doing that in the sense that I, you know, I try to try to center my, my church going around, around the presence of the Eucharist and around the readings. Um, and, you know, in as much as one can have faith in the, in the reality of, of those manifestations of the divine, then the sort of externals don't matter very much. Um, but I'm also acutely conscious that sort of the average experience of a churchgoer in any Western country or any Western country I've ever been to is this extremely aesthetically ugly series of things, you know, this horrible singing and um, sort of rituals. There's guitars, guitars sometimes. Um, and the sort of, you know, the rituals are kind of, the solemnity is is cheapened along the edges. Um, and, you know, start to bring back to COVID for a minute, but in a way, the, the fact that all these, um, all these clerics were suddenly happy to wear masks and use hand sanitizer, <laughs> so I think sort of indicates how debased their sense of the sacredness of liturgy had become that they were ready to throw, the, throw this garbage in with it. I mean, it's just as horror to see. Um, and, you know, so even though, like, I personally can sort of, like, you know, I can sort of take it, as it were, in terms of, of all the, all this um, sort of, this lack, this, it's not just a question of it, you know, lacking aesthetic pleasure, but there being a certain irreverence in it. I mean, I think it makes, you know, if there's going to be a very substantial revival of Catholic practice in the West, um, and I have no idea if there, there will in, in my lifetime, um, but it's going to have to involve more of a return to tradition. Um, I, I just, um, you know, it will, you know, it can't be simply a sort of trying to turn back the clock, but something of the, the wealth of tradition, the dignity of traditional practices is going to have to be thrown into the mix because this sort of, you know, the 50 years of kind of guitars and um, inane hymns and inane, uh, inane preaching that um, has very little connection to the theological resolution of the church. Like, you know, it's just, it's just not good enough. Um, and, you know, it's just very clear to me that like, if I have like a friend and I want to say, you know, you want to come to church and maybe you get something out of that. Like most of the parishes I've ever been part of, if I were to take that friend to that parish, it's like, it's going to be really hard for him or her to get anything out of that just because, you know, you kind of already have to have the faith coming from somewhere else to be able to see for these, these very, very ugly surfaces. Um, and so, you know, in that sense. Yeah. yeah please. And I like, Oh, I just wanted to say, and like, I, you know, when I went to these, uh, you know, masses, like as a kind of like, you know, as someone who was raised Catholic and then sort of like wandered and then kind of came back, like I found, I found the, I don't think the aesthetics are like unimportant, right? Like I found it incredibly, I found it incredibly moving 
to be in a space where that type of ritual was being adhered to and where, um, you know, uh, I found it very beautiful. I don't speak Latin. I couldn't understand <laughs> what was being said. But, you know, I found the entire um, event to be incredibly moving and it did make me feel mm-hmm. very close to God. And I think that to some extent it's like, you know, um, people can dismiss it as like, you know, a, com- a complete like, you know, like, I don't mm-hmm. know, like fashion choice. Like I was at an art, I was at an art event last night long story but they were reading um erotica don't even want to i i ended up there by accident i just wanna, i didn't know what it was but um they were reading erotica and like you know half the half the women in there this isn't a this is in soho half the women in there had like crosses around their necks and stuff like to me i'm like okay whatever that's probably been happening since madonna did stuff like that right like you know, that's that's back in fashion that people are wearing crosses around their neck. I don't know the sincerity of their faith. They're at a they're at an erotica event, so am I. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, but but when I went to the actual Latin mass, you know, several times and sat through it, I, I did think the aesthetics were important and it did make mm-hmm. me feel very close to God. And it, it, it was very different than the Catholic mass that I was dragged to throughout my childhood in Texas, where it was very like guitars and jeans and like, you know, like I never really felt yeah. very moved um, as a, as a kid in those spaces, but I felt very moved in this kind of traditional. Mass. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think I mean, anyway, I, mean, I just I wanted to the say balance that here is that, you know, what one has to realize, and you know, like I'm completely with you, and you know, as I said, I, you know, I'm not, I'm the last person to defend the kind of service that you went through in Texas, but I'm, you know, I know it well, even though I've never been to Texas, because you know, this is kind of the norm that that's set in um, throughout the U.S. and most of Europe, and you know, it's kind of terrifyingly the same everywhere. Like, you know, I can go to mass in some country I've never been in, and I know that if it's in Western Europe, there's going to be some some crappy hymns and um, probably, probably quite possibly some guitars or some lousy organ playing, and you know, um, most of the congregation will be 75, and it's, it's always the same bloody experience. Um, but what I would say in terms of um, the kind of, as you say, closeness to God that one feels in this, you know, this experience, this is much more elevating, and that is, um, you know, is designed as a word to be that way. That, you know, th- these things have, you know, they're centuries old, and they've been, um, they've been used because you know, the experience of, of the generations has found that, that they, they have this sublimating effect that's um, raising you up, is that, in a sense, you know, if you're going to become a regular, if someone is going to become a regular sort of practitioner of the faith, you know, the sort of initial hit of that will fade. So, you know, just as anything that um, is sort of very particular, I think, one has to do, do with faith, um, anything that's very sort of new and beautiful and pointing us towards God, you know, it, it can have this sort of gr- effect where it grabs you at the beginning, but to, you know, that's not a state in which any of us, um, except, you know, maybe St. Francis of Assisi or someone, in fact not, um, can maintain themselves from week to week. Um, and, you know, which is, not, which, which is not to say that, you know, like, yes, Mass should be beautiful every week, um, and I'm all for that, but the purely sort of the almost aesthetic shock shock effect in itself will not be enough to, I think, keep most people going. That makes sense. 
I have a question, uh, Daniel. Um, yes. And apologies if you already discussed this while I was gone. Um, okay. But uh, so I'll let you know if we did. Yeah. Um, but so it seems like um, a lot of your perspective on the whole COVID situation um, was informed, at least in part, by um, the ideas of um, Ivan Illich. And yeah. uh, um, he was famously Catholic, um, although I believe he was excommunicated by the church at some point. Uh, no, is that correct? That, 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 uh, that, that, um, I should probably deal with that right away. No, Ivan Illich was never excommunicated. That's not correct. Okay. Um, so okay. He, he, was, he was a Catholic priest, um, so he was more than a Catholic. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. you know, it was kind of one of these vacant fudges where he said various things um, that he was encouraged, I can't remember the exact details, but the overall sort of canonical situation is clear to me. He was encouraged to retract, and he said he wouldn't, and mm. they kind of said, oh, we really wish you would, um, and then he <laughs> said, well, I'm not going to, and I'm going to stop being an active priest, and it was left there. So he was never okay. condemned, he was never ordered to stop practicing, you know, his ministry. Okay. Um, and, so he you know, somewhat he voluntarily left he kind of the sort church. Of, he, yeah. he, um, as far as I know, he continued to practice um, his whole life, mm -hmm. um, continued to, you know, identify himself as a Catholic priest. And I would imagine, I don't know for a fact, continued to say Mass for himself personally. Um, mm -hmm. But so there was a sort of separation that was never a divorce and that the mm -hmm. church never wanted to force. So um, he, it's just not correct. He was excommunicated. Um, and okay. It's what he would have done if he yeah. had been, but he wasn't. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, and, yeah. So that's just kind of the backdrop to my question, which was, um, do you think your um, faith um, informed your response to the your you, I guess your opposition to this saving lives paradigm, or I think maybe more accurately, you're not opposed to saving lives period but the the opposition to this idea of bare life right that like yeah. this is the highest value um was that informed by your faith at all yes yes i think fundamentally um you know like mm -hmm. if i were to go over my um i'll try not to answer this too much like but if i were to go over my sort of um trajectory towards um becoming very opposed to, to what was done in terms of COVID. I, you know, I can't say that I immediately was opposed to all of it. Um, you know, there are people who were, and, and they have my admiration, but I was kind of a follow the science guy for a few months, um, mm -hmm. you know, for reasons I, I could go into if you want. But um, even from the very beginning, I had this very strong sense that something was wrong, that, you know, there had to be, you know, where is this going? And this is an awful way to live. Um, and, you know, what's the end game? Um, and, um, you know, and certainly, like, in the early days, I was kind of just, like, reading about viruses and IFRs and, um, and um, you know, vi vi aerosols and, and all this stuff that, it, that so many of us were stuck into and the replication crisis and what was wrong with science. But, you know, it also, like, the thing that was always somewhat clear to me and it just became clearer and clearer, um, and certainly by the time I started writing publicly about it, is that you know the fundamental opposition had to be about the question of what the right way to live was, and not about the question of 
you know, what was effective or not, or what was, um, you know, the cost-benefit analysis of outcomes, but about, you know, how we live and how we die. And, you know, for me, the answers to those questions do, of course, come from, from my personal faith and from the faith of the church. Um, and that's not to say that there aren't other ways to answer those questions that can get people to resist bare life, but I think that some kind of resistance to bare life that connected to some sense of us being more than being transcendental creatures is ultimately necessary um, for a sort of the most solid kind of rejection, not just of this particular episode in public health, but in the entire sort of project of saving lives at the expense of persons. Um, so, um, so you, I mean, I mean, the short answer to your question is yes. And you know, like the one thing that I most wanted to hear from the church and that I heard from time to time, but not nearly enough, was that, you know, it's fundamental to our faith that, um, that suffering and death are part of life and have an ultimate um, transcendental purpose um, and that death is not the end. Um, and that this should radically change how we view something like a pandemic. Um, and you know, I, so I do try to start so, in terms of what I say about this. Yeah, that's a great um, answer. Um, and I guess I I am somewhat curious if you if you have the time because um, this is something we we like to talk about a lot with our guests is is your kind of journey like how you got to where you are in terms of the your your views on the pandemic. Okay, um, yeah, I'm happy to talk about it if you uh, if you'd like me to. So. I'll tell you, let me sort of, I'll just go do this chronologically so I think that's simplest. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, probably a little, sort of early, my early um, positions are fairly standard. So, you know, I remember that as late as kind of February was just trying to become a big news story and I was, I was utterly dismissive of it. I was just like, this is another nonsense that the media are trying to make us care about. You know, there's a new virus that is killing 80 year olds. 80 year olds die. Um, this is, you know, it's just like the new Barbie movie, like, just please shut up about this. Um, <laughs> and um, I was kind of in that mode until, um, until these lockdowns started happening um, and it became very clear that this, um, you know, this was a looming threat in my country that we would actually lock down. And then we started to get the situation where people were calling for lockdowns, including highly qualified people who I assume were sort of relevant experts. And <laughs> the experts. You know, early on, I had a very strong, these guys must know what they're talking about. Sort of, that was my default position. And undoubtedly, this is probably because mm -hmm. I am an academic and, you know, I like to mm -hmm. believe that academic, you know, much as my own personal experience could tell me it's more complicated, I like to overall believe that, you know, if you're a professor of public health or epidemiology at Harvard, you're not talking garbage. Um, and, you know, I had never in my life given more than, you know, cursory thought, like, oh, I've got a cold, to infectious disease, infectious disease control, or anything like this. So it was just like, you know, <laughs> we may have well been discussing the composition, the chemical composition of the rings of Saturn. And it's like, okay, well, if I want to know about that, I'd ask an astronomer if I want to know what happens in terms of um, what you do in a pandemic, okay, here's some guy who's 
at Harvard and is publishing in The Guardian, it's good enough for me. Um, and, you know, then to some extent I was scared, so, you know, I was, like, you know, part of my mind, like, there's all this terror about I, I, I was infected by, by it to some extent, off and on, particularly in the very early months, um, thinking, oh, I could die, and, you know, I think I had that reaction many people did of seeing these news stories that were maximized about healthy person is my age, gets COVID, and drops dead, like, that could be me, and, you know, much as I try to be a man of faith on any given day, I... Um, not immune <laughs> to the fear of death. Um, so all of that was going on, um, but um, I guess the other thing that was happening is that there was this phrase I sort of clung on to almost from the very beginning, which was that what we were doing in terms of in the UK, and in the UK we had these very drastic lockdowns very quickly, was not sustainable. And I kept on saying this, this is not sustainable. And there was a close friend and members of the family that I was discussing all this was this with constantly, um, and I just kept on saying this. And they weren't they weren't disagreeing with me. I had you know a lot of a lot of um, support in thinking about this from my my family and, and one friend in particular. Um, and well, and that was the kind of bait and switch they pulled with with the initial fifteen days to slow the mm -hmm. spread. And everyone was kind of like, okay, well, I could do 15 days or whatever, you know. Exactly. And it um, just, yeah. And, you know, I think by the time those 15 days were over, maybe it was three weeks in the UK, like, we already had this feeling it wasn't going to be uh, the end of mm -hmm. it. And, of course, it, it was then extended. Um, and so I was then basically got on Twitter, and um, not, not, as, not as a tweeter. I didn't start tweeting until much, much later. But... Like I was, you know, like there was some point where I Googled over COVID overreaction and, you know, <laughs> and so like I spent a lot of those months basically refreshing the feed of people like Alex Berenson 50 times a day. Um, and, you know, like I'm no longer a sort of big fan of Alex Berenson, but he was one of the first people to have anything to say about this. And so I basically went through this kind of partly scientific education of, you know, learning about, and this is, I had help from this from various quarters, but I'm, I'm learning about this from, um, you know, reading people on Twitter who knew what they were talking about or who didn't, but pointed in the right directions, and then reading, reading more about scientific papers. And, you know, one of the first things I kind of became very conscious of, of you know, how broken the institutions we were supposed to trust actually are um, in terms of, um, you know, sort of the, the quality of medical research. And um, so it was kind of... Um, fairly um, sort of moving away from the kind of starting trust authority. So there was that stream. Um, and then the other stream was just this sort of more and more potent sense of horror at the way we were living. Um, mm -hmm. And um, the sense that this, this wasn't, you know, this wasn't a right way to live. Um, and, you know, I, w I had some of that at the beginning, but not enough that I wasn't prepared to do it. But then as the months went by, um, that that just became more and more overwhelming. That there was something deeply anti anti human about this, and that um, and so um, I t one of the people I talked to a lot about it was my sister, um, and there was this conversation we had in the summer of 2020 um, where we were discussing this, um, and I should say she was always much. You know, she started out by saying this is wrong and never moved. But, um, and, you know, I was kind of more and more in that direction. But I said to her, well, you know, 
What if it was not something like COVID, but some really grave plague where people were dying at all ages um, and you know, all around us? And she said, if it was something like that, then we would need to be together so we could mourn and we could look after each other. And you know, I just felt like that's fundamentally the right answer to this. Um, mm -hmm. So you know, that was just one, one of many episodes of trying, learning to think that way. Um, but um, I would say sort of over the course of summer 2020, I pretty much had pivoted a position where um, I just thought the whole thing was not just, you know, masks don't work or lockdowns aren't effective enough, but there was a sort of, there was a deep evil in it. Um, and I mean, I can't say like, you know, I probably wasn't fully, fully blackpilled on it until a little later, because I remember saying to a friend sort of late that winter that like, you know, maybe it was okay. It was still reasonable to um, to say we shouldn't have large gatherings. So I was like, oh, make some little compromises. Um, and, you know, but basically any sort of, um, any sort of compromise that I was ready to make peeled away. You know, I'm now, I'm officially, you know, people who are opposed to um, lockdowns are always accused of wanting to let it rip. That is my position. Um, <laughs> and, um, yeah. and so, you know, it became at least what I see as a fairly coherent point of view where, you know, one could both argue on the, on the facts that, you know, I am prepared to do that to some extent. You know, I don't, you know, I genuinely don't believe lockdowns had very much effect. Um, mm -hmm. And, um, you know, let alone masks. Um, but then also, you know, the sense that, you know, there was something, you know, that what really matters here, um, what's, most, what's most dangerous and most objectionable isn't that we didn't use the best data or um, you know, tried to sort of pervert the what's supposed to be the open dialogue of science, which I don't I don't believe in as much as some people. But you know, what's what's what the real you know the deepest horror here is the sort of rejection of of living in a right way. Um, yeah, and, yeah. You know, like the, the ex an example I've used is that um, there's this list in Christianity of the corporal works of mercy, which I'm not going to get all of, but it's things like you know the two key ones are visit the sick and bury the dead. Um, and suddenly you say, well, well, that's good, but no, now it's not because we have this, because we have COVID, whatever that means, we no longer visit the sick, we no longer bury the dead. And, you know, we've got a new morality and new corporal works of mercy, which are stay home and Zoom people. And that's what has to be rejected. The rules don't change. The sick must be visited. Mm -hmm. Those we love must be spent time with. The dead must be buried. Mm -hmm. interesting yeah and i i mean i noticed that and and um me and q didn't really start figuring this out until a little bit later um like after the vaccine rollout but um but uh although it was gradual to some degree um but i one thing i noticed is that a lot of people who were opposed to it from very early on were either um, very just like extreme extroverted types who like were just losing their minds, you know, in isolation or um, basically religious people um, who I don't know exactly what to make of that. But um, maybe it's like just having, you know, faith in some higher authority than the experts or or what to attribute it to but i definitely did um notice that <laughs> yeah I, I think that's true um and you know i i suspected that there's sort of two levels to that um you know 
ultimately, you know, there's something deeply unreligious about uh, about this whole thing. You know, bare life is sort of the anti-religion. So, uh, in as much as one has a, some real faith inside one, there should be some level of opposition to this. But I also think that it's the case of kind of what you pointed at that, um, you know, those of us like there's a sort of I think there's a sort of delusional sense that um, is encouraged in in this post enlightenment post enlightenment period that um, the sort of ideal human lives without any authority and just makes up her own mind using her critical reason about everything that ever comes down her path. And of course, the truth is none of us live like that. Um, there are always parts of our lives where we have to accept authority of one kind or another. And um, I think to some extent, religious people were able to say like, I've already got the authority accepting part of my life covered. And, you know, I therefore don't have to also accept the authority of government or the authority of science or the authority of you know, idiots writing the New York Times because in as much as if I, I have a need for like, this need I have to put trust in authority is already satisfied and therefore I have a certain freedom relative to these other kinds of authority. If that makes sense. Yeah, interesting. I've just... Uh, sorry, guys. The, the <laughs> I've been listening to everything everyone's been saying, but one of the witnesses at the UFO trial just said that the government does have uh, non-human uh, remains in there. Uh, <laughs> Can't wait to see this in their um, in their in their possession. So I've just been I've I've got when I saw that flash across my screen, I started scrolling because I was like, oh shit, here we go again. We're having a I, um, not to Daniel, sorry to do this, but I'm like a new <laughs> psyop <laughs> is, is emerging. Yes. <laughs> so I, I, I lost, I lost the focus eternal those last return 10 minutes of primarily the alien because psyop, I, was, I think. One of my friends has tried to convince me. This yeah, is, but this now they have. Move, like, so I'm going to reserve <laughs> judgment on that. I have no comment this time on <laughs> the alien remains. Yeah, we can't. I guess we can't say anything until we see where this goes, but there's literally on C-SPAN right now, a government official sitting saying the government has alien remains. That's insane. So, <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll see what, we'll see what they produce or what happens with that. But anyway, that's, that's why I lost <laughs> I a little bit you. of focus. Um, <laughs> but, but um, a, do you have any more questions for Daniel? Yeah, no, and, and now, we really so. appreciate your time. And when I when I originally posted, like, come on my conspiracy podcast and defend this position, I did not think that you would actually do that. So I I um I really uh, honestly appreciate um, we we oh, uh, no, I no, had no, a I, great time um, talking so to I, you. So since, since you mentioned that, I'll, I'll take the opportunity to um to um so, you know. I, mentioned my friend, um, someone else on Twitter, so I want to boost his account, my friend Max, who tweets at, at Max from Max, um, and he had listened <laughs> to your um, your episode with David um, and encouraged that you should go on. They did a very good episode with David, and, you know, that okay. was enough for me. Um, <laughs> those are people who, whose work I admire um, and recommend. Um, so I'm very grateful for you guys for you know, for inviting me in. Well, thanks, on. Max, for putting putting in a good word too. Then, because I really enjoyed the conversation. So, yeah, I did too. Thank you, Daniel, for spending so much time Not with us. All. We really appreciate it. Okay, guys, have a enjoy the rest of your day. All right. Yeah, logging off. Thoughts and prayers, <laughs> listeners. Talk soon. Bye. <laughs>